Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. What we realized that we were doing is we we're letting people have entirely new workflows that just weren't possible at all before. We can take the product that we have, adapt it to like a workflow that already exists and just plug into that existing workflow. Or we can do the really hard thing and go after an entirely like new category, just really be in this, in this realm of category creation. And that was a key decision that we faced after we saw we started seeing some early traction. And what we ultimately doing is we decided to actually go with the category creation, uh, which I think informed a lot of the other pieces that I just chatted about. One of the biggest things that the consequences of this is just it, it really had a fundamental paradigm shift in how we decided to run the company. My name is Will Gaviria, and I am one of the co-founders at Coactive AI. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried to begin. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart. And today, how Will Gaviria built a way to make image and video data useful so you can supercharge your business. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there too. Terso makes this easy utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech/slash code story. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Will Gaviria was born and raised in Colombia, immigrating to Florida at 11 years old. His family started off in a single bedroom together and worked hard for their life and successes. He got a full ride to MIT, and funny enough, he had to convince his mother that it was a legit school. Through all of his studies, he got to see the rise of AI and focused on neomorphic computing. But outside of tech, he's married with a cat named Chipotle, and he lives in the Bay Area. He loves playing Magic the Gathering and doing CrossFit. Will and his co-founder observed firsthand the explosion of visual content. At the same time, artificial intelligence had reached a mature state, such that you could use it to learn from unstructured data. They set out to build the next big thing, specifically in context of unstructured visual data. This is the creation story of Coactive. 
What Coactive is at its core is we're an enterprise B2B SaaS. And what we do is we help folks unlock the value of their visual content for critical use cases such as search and analytics. And the way we do this is that we bring all this visual unstructured data into the world of structured data such as SQL and other big data tools that folks already use and love. What this does is it makes the platform very powerful, yet simple enough for both technical and non-technical data professionals to leverage. What the product actually does is we allow you to search, we allow you to filter, and we allow you to perform analytics on your visual content. And to go through each one of those just a little bit and and to explain it, search really is an intelligent search in which there's a very natural way for you to find the right content, whether that's an image example or whether that's some text. From there, we allow you to, to do dynamic tagging. And really what this is about is, is about tagging content, but tagging it in such a way that you have control over the tags, you have control over how they evolve and how they're defined. And we make that super simple for folks to do. So it's almost like we're trying to bring everyone from this world of static tags that they make one time and are expensive to make to a world where tags are like a living and breathing thing. You can Then you can version in the same way that you version and launch and deploy code. And the third thing is with all of this underneath the hood, we allow you to essentially do analytics and all of this. So it's not just a bunch of qualitative things you're doing, is you can get down to your nitty gritty of quantitative and really leverage this data for different things. We really focus on making the platform accessible to techco and non-techco users. And the result of all of this is that we see that companies gain a much deeper and complete understanding of their image and video data, which really helps different business functions. And you know what business functions depends on the vertical. There was a few things that we saw happening in parallel. The first one is we saw generally an explosion in visual, in visual content in which people were just creating more of it and collecting more of it. And this goes back to a Bill Gates quote in which that content is king. And if content is king, what we argue is that the king's already here. Video is about 80% of traffic on the internet. So most of what you pipe in through the web is pixels. And about 80% of content is supposed to be unstructured by 2025. And I say supposed to because I think these predictions were all made before generative AI, so that timeline has accelerated. The second trend that we saw is that AI had reached a sufficient enough maturity with Transformers back in 2019, such that you could really make sense of unstructured content at scale. And what was really happening is we were setting up this big data movement around unstructured data. The parallel there is in the early 2010s, you had a lot of data that was structured data, and distributed computing really helped take advantage of a lot of that content. What we have is a lot of unstructured data that's being collected in a mass, and this movement, this time around, the unstructured data movement is going to be powered by AI. We said to ourselves, someone is going to build the next Spark, the next Ray, the next, I don't know, MapReduce, Hive, for unstructured data. And back in 2021, we said, hey, let's make sure whoever does it is, that's us, specifically within the context of visual data. Let's dive into the MVP then. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? The MVP actually happened in two stages for us. The first stage took us about three months and that is we just wanted to get the limited core functionality working. And we use Python, Spark underneath the hood, sklearn, PyTorch, and we did all of this on a Jupyter Notebook. The second phase of the MVP, once we had that, is because it was our product was just so visual, we actually needed to create a, a visual MVP. That took us about probably an additional three months in which we built a web application based on React and Fast API. I just want to say it was a very different environment back in 2021. 
there was a lot less off-the-shelf software for AI than there are than there is today. And so we had to build a lot of things in-house. So we had to build an in-house vector database when one didn't exist. We had to build an in-house data versioning system, etc. If there's any piece of advice I can give is use off-the-shelf to keep up. But if you find that you're having to build a lot of things in-house, that's usually a pretty strong indicator that you're on the right path. Anyway, just a little aside. We were doing demos and we found that there were actually two audiences, not just one. There was an audience that was technical stakeholders for which the notebook was, it was enough. It wasn't bad. It was good. It was good for them to get the idea. But there was a whole lot of folks that we didn't expect that were non-technical. And the notebook was just really confusing. People were like, didn't really know what was going on, right? If you've never seen a Jupyter notebook before, it's just, it doesn't look like a product. It just looks like you're doing something. And they weren't sure what was happening. Our product was inherently dealing with visual content. So it needed to be visual and have a strong UX. And so that's where we brought in a fantastic full-stack software engineer. Also, honestly, could be just a, is an amazing UX designer. And she helped us build this entire web application. And from there, once we had a, that second MVP, we found that, hey, we were really hitting it with both audiences where the technical folks could got it and the non-technical folks also got it. Going forward, we realized, hey, those are both two consumers that we need to address and two people, two stakeholders that we really need to convince. I hear the, the decisions and trade-offs you're having to make at a high level, but dive into them a little bit for me, and maybe one or two that was really important, maybe maybe the off-the-shelf versus the building your own kind of point there, but work through some of those decisions and trade-offs that, that you really had to dive into, and, and, and I'm curious about how you cope with those decisions. Taking a step back, one of the things I realized in the very short term after we built both MDPs and we were having a lot of these demos is that a lot of these folks were expect, expecting something that was just like, oh, can I do something cheaper, faster, better? And more so than that, what we realized that we were doing is we we're letting people have entirely new workflows that just weren't possible at all before. We can take the product that we have, adapt it to like a workflow that already exists and just plug into the existing workflow. Or we can do the really hard thing and go after an entirely like new category, just really be in this, in this realm of category creation. And that was a key decision that we faced after we saw we started seeing some early traction. And what we ultimately doing is we decided to actually go with the category creation, uh, which I think informed a lot of the other pieces that I just chatted about. One of the biggest things that the consequences of this is just it, it really had a fundamental paradigm shift in how we decided to run the company. I think there's a part about the product and the go-to-market and sales that I could butcher my way through, but I'll refer to an amazing article by Martin Casado on essentially, this is an A16Z blog, he talks about market annealing. What's probably closer to home for us was with the team, right? Like we needed to really ultimately sell this vision. We had to make category creation the North Star of the entire company. And we had an amazing conversation with Tim Tully from Menlo Ventures, and he recommended this book, Play Bigger. Buddy and I went and read it, and we thought it was just absolutely amazing. So we actually ended up doing is we flipped that to the entire company. So we read it, the entire book of Play Bigger as a company for like a company-wide book club. And that was actually an amazing alignment tool because the key outcome is we understood what we were doing. We set that North Star and the whole team and the company was frankly like re-energized and aligned on that vision, which probably was one of the most important things that we've done like as a team activity. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, 
utilizing zero trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. Let's move forward then. So you've got your MVP, it's working, you're gaining some traction. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think what I'm curious about there is how you went about building your roadmap and what sort of criteria were you putting together to say, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Coactive. Listening to customers is actually super, super important. And I say listening specifically, not talking, but like actually just listen to them. This is something, one of the things that really informs our general direction in this is, is we have an amazing company advisor, Ken Coleman, and he always says this thing where he says customers don't buy a product, they buy success. Our number one job as founders is what is, it, what is the success that people are willing to pay us for? Essentially, you build a product that lets you figure out how to answer that question. This is like the early days of the company. You build an MVP to essentially help you answer that question, right? Once you know the answer to that question, you build a roadmap that delivers the success to customers. And so what that effectively meant for us, it meant making progress on things like scalability, right? We're at the enterprise scale of data, and so we need to return results from terabytes in seconds, right? There's no silver bullet there, and so it was just, to follow Ben Horowitz's uh, kind of analogy, it was, there was no silver bullets. There was just a lot of lead bullets that we had to, we had to build. While we could build a horizontal capabilities such as like search and analytics and dynamic tagging, solutions needed to be as specific on, on, a, on a use case or on a vertical. And so that's really one of the things we, we really focused on. Where we are right now is it's definitely not no longer an MVP stage. We're definitely like an enterprise-ready product. What's really interesting about this, though, is that besides the product, there's a lot of table stakes that are really important to get right within the context of enterprise and enterprise SaaS. So we really prioritize them from the beginning. And these are actually really around security and reliability. Companies are giving you their most valuable asset, right? Their data. Really the TLDR on this is we we got SOC 2 certification super early in the company. Companies are also relying on you potentially for production systems. So that's that's one of the key things we came up with pretty early, just in turn internal um, and external SLAs of guarantees. 
I think overall really is just knowing really well what industry you're getting into. And if you get it in their enterprise, I just, I can't emphasize enough how important security and reliability are for folks. So you, you mentioned we, and you mentioned we're building this and how you approach things. Tell me about how you approach building your team. And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? If I can flip that question, actually, is like before building a team, I think you have to know what company you're trying to build. And one of the things that we realize is we cared a lot about culture, right? So Cody and I come from different backgrounds and we've been in different positions where, you know, we were the only, you know, I've been the only Latino in the room. Cody's been the only like black person in the room. We wanted to have something that felt like a breath of fresh air as opposed to just like yet another tech company, if that makes sense. First thing we did before we even started hiring people, when it was just the two of us, we made some statements about like, here's where our culture is and here's how we want to build. Actually, one of the first things we say in our culture is that culture is actually our first and most important product. So we think of it really as a product. We have this whole nerdy thing where we publish it on GitHub. And the reason why we publish it on GitHub is so you could actually see people could submit PRs. You could see the, the, the commit history of it. So it wasn't just like some plaque on the wall. It was, like, it was like a really living and breathing thing that got updated and that was transparent. Once we had, we understood what kind of company we wanted to build, then what we look for is we look for people that equally valued culture in the same way that we do and people that could get the job done. Of course, it goes a little bit more in depth, right? Especially as how to get people that could get the job done. One of the first challenges that we had when building the company was like, whoa, how, how do we hire for people that could get the job done, right? For those folks that are thinking about that, I highly recommend this book called Who? The A Method for Hiring by Jeff Smart. And this was actually recommended to us by one of our company advisors, Matei Zaharia. And it's also, I believe, what they use for Databricks as a kind of a hiring uh, model. And that's worked wonders for us. Really highly recommend that as a framework for how to find those people that could get the job done. Once people are onboarding and how do you incorporate the team, how do you make them into winning horses? What we say is a co-active, we build product, but we develop people. So really, it really is about building the right people to your team and just setting them up for success double-edged with that sort. It's like, hey, you as a founder, you as a manager, what are you doing to ensure that they can actually meet those performance goals and to make sure that they can go even above and beyond? This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vercel edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash CodeStory. Terso 
Welcome to the Data Edge. Let's flip to scalability then. And this will be interesting. Given what you're building, was this built to scale efficiently from day one, or at least with scale in mind? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction in any sort of capacity? Yes. <laughs> we knew we wanted to be at the enterprise scale. And so from the very beginning, we thought about, we were, I think I said this earlier, the MVP was built on Spark for a reason. So yes, so a scale was something we thought about from the very beginning. Cody's entire PhD was on data systems and AI and how to do things at scale. So that's really one of the things we focus on on our product from the beginning. Now, when you go to company building and building a team, I think that one becomes a much more interesting question. Taking a step back, you have to fundamentally understand why you're hiring folks. And for us, again, it goes back to customer by success. So you build a product roadmap to deliver that success to customers and you hire a team to execute on that roadmap. So scale efficiency, I don't think should be the focus. It should be the risk of executing on this roadmap that you set for yourself. And so the real challenge is figuring out how to hire for that execution. I think this requires a lot of self-awareness about what strengths you need and when you need them. This goes back to uh, that thing we, that's a really big lesson in the hard thing about hard things from Ben Horowitz. But the challenge in doing this is that you're doing it in real time. So you have a very limited amount of time and focus. So I almost want to reframe the question that I think less so than scale efficiency, like really focus on like, how do you minimize the risk of execution by hiring the right team? And that specifically boils down to what are the strengths that you need? And once you figure out what those strengths are, you hire those folks. And I think scale comes as a result of that. Okay, well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? We built like a really amazing product. I'm happy to like nerd out about what we built all day. I give talks on just this topic alone because it's just so interesting what's going on right now in AI. But honestly, besides all that, maybe going back to the last question, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is really the team and the culture that we built around the team. Cody and I, from the beginning, we set out to build a different type of company. And when it was just the two of us, we could align on all of that. But like now when it's 20 plus people and we've really taken it there, it's, it's just amazing to see how far it's come. Like with this overall guided model of we build product, but we develop people, it's really easy to say these things. It is a lot harder to live them and bring your A game and bring your positive attitude every single day. And I think one of the things I'm really proud of as we look at the balcony is that both Cody and I as founders have, we've we done that. We've really stuck to our guns, like new kind of what company we wanted to build and stuck to that just every day, just showing up, showing up with a smile, showing up with the right attitude. Cody always has this awesome quote that he says, people overestimate what they can do in three months and drastically underestimate what they can do in years. And I think the two years of building the company and just showing up every day, it's just amazing to see how far we've come and it's been totally worth it. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. If you're building a company, you're going to just accept you're going to make nothing but mistakes. The real question is how quickly you, you come back up from them. We had a 30-day POC with a customer, and I think we were hopping on the kickoff call. Hey, guys, we're super excited to do a POC. By the way, we don't have 30 days anymore. You have five. So tell us that that's what it is. Let us know if you can do it. <laughs> And so it was really funny. It was like the definition of a fire drill. And we needed to execute in five days. So we had this big planning meeting. We had like an all hands of the deck to execute. And we had a whole plan. It's okay, cool. We're all going to be this barrel of threats. We're going to go and we're going to get in those in five days. It was amazing actually to see everyone come together and realize that we could do it in five days. And then, so we go for it, right? We're all heads down. We go, we start executing on this. And around day three, I realized I left a major component out in the planning. And I'm like, oh man, like this is gonna derail the entire POC. It might push us to we can't do it in five days anymore. 
What's funny about this whole situation, I actually forgot what exactly the thing was. I just remember how I felt and I felt like horrible because I was like, I felt like I let the team down and all this. I was like, all right, I'm going to have to pull an all-nighter for two days to fix this. Back to undergrad days, like monster and whatever I got to do. And so I scheduled like a sync with the team to just drop the news and like then take ownership of everything. And what's really funny to me is in my mind, I messed up. And then when the team heard it, their first response is, like, oh, yeah, we realized you forgot this like a few days ago and we just did it already. And so that, <laughs> that was the sense of relief and roller coaster of emotions that was really interesting. But I was trying to figure out, like, how did this happen? Right. And I think this goes back to the question of just how important it is to have the right people. And besides having the right people, how to lead them with the why more so than the what and the how. And I think because we were so focused on leading with context and leading them with like why we're doing things, like they just, they realized I messed up and they, in the spirit of like, of truly in the spirit of one team, like they covered for me when I didn't even realize they were. Okay, this will be fun and be fun to hear your passion come out as a founder. What does the future look like for Coactive, the product and for your team? I think right now we're having like huge impacts with the existing customers and pilots, right? I think one of the things that's really interesting in going down this category creation route is we're not seeing like incremental improvements when we help people sign up for Coactive. It's like 10x, 100x. It's like massive leapfrogs in, in what they could do. Generative AI is creating a lot of unstructured content. Like we're no longer bottleneck or rate limited by humans. So it's making the need for a product more and more urgent within this context of like enterprises accumulating a lot of unstructured content. And you combine these two, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of use cases as well. That's the thing. There's just, you just have a lot of unstructured content being creation, created. Our product can really help like 10x, 100, 100x people. What we're going to really focus on is take this opportunity, really heads down on that vertical focus and that solution focus. What are those really high value use cases that we can go after? For that execution, right now we're hiring for a PM and a product marketer. These are two really key roles for the product org. And I think as far as it goes to the future for product, that's where we're at. One of the things I'm always super grateful for is like we're getting a lot of traction. So we need a lot of hands on deck to actually deliver on that roadmap, on that success. We are, have a mature engineering organization. We have emerging functions with data and engineering organizations, such as uh, there's really key domains of data systems, ML and full stack that are super interesting because ML is at the heart of all of them. And it's just how do you build all those orgs around an ML first product? I think what I'm really excited for in the future is some of those folks that we will need to hire next. We are still hiring ML, we're still hiring full stacks. And we are like, we're, you know, right now we actually have someone today starting for solutions engineering. And we're probably going to need a lot, a lot more folks in the coming future. Will, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. Being a founder really means like you're becoming an, you may be an expert in whatever functional area you've done before, but one of the key differences is that you have to become an expert at how to build a company. It takes a village. If you haven't, if you haven't done the company building thing before, you need a lot of mentors, a lot of folks who have done it before. Everyone has a unique journey and they have a unique perspective and it's just always amazing just to, to hear the stories. I'll, I'll give a special shout out though to some of the folks uh, within the company. Again, I just want to say there's a lot of them, but as far as as far as within the company, we have a lot of, of advisors like Ken Coleman is an amazing advisor about how to just company build in general. Matej Zaharia, who is just an amazing guy overall, just literal definition of a genius. And like every time we get to like nerd out and just talk about like we're building, it's just it's always a, an awesome time. Uh, Marcelo Brasan, who is uh, amazing on the customer side. Uh, David Cook, we just brought on as an advisor for security, has just been super pivotal already, even in, in, the, in the short time. My own coach, Bill Tobin, who on the executive side, has just been amazing, really helping me grow myself as a company builds. And 
course, Cody, my co-founder, truly is like a, a team effort and like a dual effort between the two of us and the rest of the team. My wife uh, and my kitty cat, Chipotle, as huge important supporters of when I come home. They really help me get through whatever's going on. And again, my family and my friends. The recurring theme I come back to is people are just ultimately what matter, right? Like your product can shift, your vision can shift, the market can shift, but like the people are, are the ones that are going to stay. Just realizing that value and really building actually meaningful connections with folks. I just, I can't understand the value of that beyond just like the company building side and all of that. I don't know. It's just, again, like we're all just like one giant village. So I, I don't know. For folks that maybe are thinking about founding and are more kind of process oriented and all that, I really encourage you to think about the people that you're actually meeting them. Hear the stories and just have a drink, grab a meal. So we talked about a mistake but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? It doesn't have to be a mistake. It could have been something that worked, even worked well, but maybe you'd tweak it a little bit. So we had an initial hunch when we started back in 2021. A key part of the company was actually making AI accessible, right? This is why we had this really big motion around like this actually bring this data to a flow where people are used to working within this data so that meant sql right because if any data practitioner like generally knows sql and if it's something that could be done in sql then it opens up this entire realm of ways that you can interact with the data that just weren't possible before something that happened in the middle of us running this was OpenAI's ChatGPT, and there's many things you can say about what happened with OpenAI and ChatGPT. but i think the one key takeaway for me was I think a lot of the success was partially due because of how simple and approachable the interface was for, like, for anybody, right? Like when my dad's telling me about ChatGPT, that's when I know they cracked the case on UX, right? And I think that accessibility is was extremely important. If there's anything I'll do differently now is I will double down on that initial hunch that making AI accessible was a super key component of all of this. And so for anyone building today, I think I would say, I would definitely say double down on, on making whatever solution you're making accessible for folks beyond just say the ML team or just the data scientists, right? Because accessibility means that, selfishly, accessibility means that you have access to a larger market. And if you have access to a larger market, you, you probably will have more impact. And overall, it's a bigger win for the entire ecosystem. Well, Will, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? So I'm not a guy that recommends like books. I am the kind of guy that you ask me a question. I'll try to like, I'll try to answer it for you as much as I can. I'll point you to a most a blog and a most maybe a chapter in a book. So when I say these three books that I'm about to say, I, I am a strong believer that like, if you read these, you'll definitely level up uh, as far as taking on that journey. The first one, this is like an absolute must if you're in this world of essentially like venture capital backed companies. The Secrets of Sandhill Road by Scott Cooper. And the key part about this book for folks is I think it, it teaches you how VCs think about fundraising. And, and I, every time I go out down to the A16Z offices, I think I, I steal like two or three of these books. That, they give them out, so I'm not stealing. I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing them, quote unquote. And then I, I, I think I give my rate is, I give about one of these books like a month. So, so I very much believe in this book. And if you listen to, not, to nothing else, I think just if you find a company, just read this book. Like it's just it's super, it's super deep and will give you a deep understanding of how to raise. The other two books are actually, I think I mentioned them already. Uh, it's uh, Who? The A Method for Hiring by Jeff Smart, because this book really gives you a framework on how to hire the right people. And the third book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And now this is not necessarily a book that I think is, is meant to be a guide, 
But I think really what it gives you is it, it gives you a really in-depth look about Ben's story of building a company. And I think it allows you to gain a lot of empathy for just how difficult it is to build a company, right? Ben talks about all these crazy scenarios he had to go through and how he thought about them, right? And he's like a world-class company builder. And I think the biggest thing that is an eye-opener for folks is like, wow, there are a lot more things that I have to worry about except beyond like PRs and committing code, right? Like building a company is an entire endeavor. And so I think the hard thing about, about hard things really does a good job in kind of like smacking you in the face with the reality of what you're about to embark. So those are the main three books as pieces of advice that I give to founders today. The bonus for all this is, I, again, I can't, it takes a village, right? So I can't understate this enough. Like advisors constantly talk to people who have done it before, because that's where you're going to get the most wealth of information and always ask them necessarily what they did, but why they did the things they did. Because sometimes, again, the why is way more important than the what and how. That's fantastic advice. All, all great recommendations. Well, Will, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Coactive. And thank you for hosting me. No, I appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>